guest everyone welcome to the charwork podcast this is your host kushal mehra all right time to talk about another book my guest today is sriram balasubramanian sriram is a well known economist and author his areas of interest include global macroeconomic socioeconomic trends in emerging markets and indian dharmic culture he has written for several international publications such as bloomberg foreign policy the wall street journal and vox you amongst others as an independent columnist has been an independent panelist on multiple tv channels you might have seen him on cbn cnbc tv 18 he has authored two books jamba the joint family shortlisted for the third annual iaac literary festival organized by the indo american arts council and the visits which has been featured in various publications including the hindu he used to be an international junior chess player and is an alumni of columbia university new york He lives in the Washington D.C. Maryland area, but today we are talking about his new book, which is Kautilyanomics for Modern Times, and we're going to be talking about it in detail. Shri Ram, welcome. Namaste, Kushal. Uh, great to be on your podcast. Um, I've been a silent fan of your podcast for some time, uh, and uh, it's the wide range of topics that you discuss, uh, and also the uh, the different perspectives you bring to the table is something very uh welcoming um on on a lighter note i'm also curious to know whether uh the punjabi or the mumbaiker or the canadian kushal is going to come in this show everything <sighs> everything my 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 only request is please don't be a silent supporter <laughs> <laughs> and more than that i'm also worried that my minimal understanding of hindi would be a deterrent but anyways let's let's see Nah, uh, but so, on so, a more so, serious so. note, I think it's a great podcast. I, I I love the variety, and I think one thing that I really like about the show is, even though you know you have a different perspective on things, I think there's a very healthy sort of engagement of ideas, uh, um, which I've seen, uh, and uh, that is something I really appreciate. So yeah, thank you. Great to be much. here, and uh, glad to discuss about the book. Thank you very much. Well, uh, uh, as far as uh, this podcast is concerned, ninety-eight percent of the content is in Hindi. So, was oh, for English, I, 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 and I, there is a reason why I kept it in English is because I did not want to alienate a the diaspora who may not know uh, any Indian languages. You know, second generation, third generation Indians who may not know any Indian language, and also I did not want to alienate Southern Indians because uh, I, I wanted to create a product and a podcast for a global uh, language. Uh, landscape and also all indians unfortunately uh, uh, it, it's uh, it suffers in the views because of that in in a way because i stick to english but it's okay it is what it is so i appreciate the kind words so maybe we'll start with this why did you feel the need to write this book right it, i mean your previous two works were more technical i guess because you are an economist you are a full time economist so well, why how did the interest into i guess the cultural aspect and uh, uh and blending it with uh, something like economics come from where where did you come up with that thought yeah uh thank you kushal so uh, just to start off with i mean these are my personal views they're not really of any organization i'm affiliated to but the book itself was sort of a you know personal endeavor i mean as an economist we are used to working on data sets and you know uh, basically data economic data and economic analysis right so and and we publish papers publications and the research you know sort of takes picks gets picked up in policy policy sort of you know uses this to execute their ideas and then it impacts the amad right so in that context i chanced upon angus madison's research work i mean for your listeners uh Angus Madison was one of the world's leading economic historians uh and he produced a dataset um uh multiple versions of the dataset uh, uh under the aegis of the Norwegian Research Institute uh which basically gives you a dataset from 0 CE onwards till about 1000 years uh in terms of economic progress till about 1920th century uh so he gives you gdp data gdp per capita data um uh and uh, he 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 argues uh he's done an extensive research process so i was working by chance on the data set so so it sort of came to me at that time and 
coincidentally also i was learning sanskritam uh in in as part time just as a fascination because i i used to learn it when i was young uh and another coincidence is that the arthashastra text somehow came to me at that time so my understanding was before reading the text i thought arthashastra so artha basically you know i think that the name itself tells you that it's going to deal with wealth wealth creation and economics and policy and things like that so i sort of started to sort of analyze and try to see the research you know literature on 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 the arthashastra and what really fascinated me is most of the discussion if not all of the discussion was either on the chanakya niti side the political side uh and the defense sort of policy side uh and then you had folks like dr pillay writing about say you know chanakya for for the business mind sort of self help books which have you know done great uh, uh uh service and then the fictional side which which ashwin and a few others have written right but the basic question to me was what is the artha part of all this right so <laughs> if it was supposed to be defense policy it probably should have been rashtra shastra you know or rajya shastra for example if it's just on statecraft there's a reason why it's the artha shastra so when i was connecting all these three dots i had an intuitive understanding that the progress say from common era onwards right had an underpinning of an economic sort of framework right so that was my intuitive understanding or intuitive feel right i come from the south so from tamil nadu basically if you look at the temples in tamil nadu for example uh, the chola temples they are all marvels engineering marvels which are even difficult to replicate today right so if people at that time had that level of thinking my intuitive sense was they also would have a sort of an economic perspective uh and i felt that kautilya arthashastra could be a good segue to sort of understand that flow um of if, first of all if there is a commonality uh of in their approach and secondly what is the sort of framework that kautilya had so this you know to sort of summarize it this sort of got me motivated to look into this and my further motivation was when i found nothing on the subject there is just like two books one by balbir sahag which i mentioned many times sort of a theoretical book but bg is a, is 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 a one man uh, army in my view on the subject because he's done so much work and this is probably the the second or third book on the subject so the fact that you know you had to sort of really dig deep sort of motivated me to look at this further and i thought that be a, some a novel exercise for people to sort of get a perspective on this so this is broadly how you know this sort of came about so uh, i i just was interested in understanding this when when somebody is reading the arthashastra how much of which school of economics they come from affects their reading and understanding of the arthashastra itself yeah th- that's a fair question right i mean more than that school i i think which school of even ideology that it comes from also matters i mean um in terms of how you view it um the the advantage okay the the challenge here really is the text covers a wide range of areas right so these areas are sort of split across the chapters you see the chapters are not segregated uh even for example within law and order there are various areas of say contractual obligations uh which are related to economic policy which are sort of intertwined in in, in these chapters right so for a particular subject expert so 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 the individual has to have the subject expertise and the individual has to have either sanskritam knowledge or work with sanskritam scholars to sort of get the poetic text and the interpretations translations from it and then contextualize it to the to 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 what we are seeing today right so that so answering a question i think um economic ideology of thinking does matter but what i attempted to do here is i sort of for, forgot the, the 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 frameworks itself in the first place so w- w- what i did was I, i tried to focus on outcomes 
right? Meaning, what was the, what were some of the outcomes of policies that he did, right? And then derived a framework away from it. I mean, from it, right? So that way, I sort of try to negate the bias that inherently I might have, say, towards a particular perspective, right? Because when you read translations, uh, there are about three to four translations, main translations, very few for uh, for 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 a subject of this much discussion, but uh, some of them come with this inbuilt in sort of uh, uh, biases. So I think it plays a role, but in my, in this particular case, I, I tried to sort of subconsciously uh, move away from that and try to sort of, you know, look at outcomes and then derive a framework. Fair enough. Now, now let's start with a fundamental thing that in the beginning of the book itself, you, you mentioned this, you, you, you talk about a very specific uh, things where you talk about different schools of economics. So I think it's in the first 50 pages of uh, the Kindle version, uh, uh, I think it was page 22, yes, page 22. So I'm reading your quote, you say a as a caricature in a pure form of socialism, which doesn't exist anywhere in the world, all decisions are taken by the state, the government. The Bharatiya template of dharma or governance offered a third alternative. Some decisions were taken by individuals, some decisions were taken by the government, and some decisions were taken by the king government. That comes across clearly in this volume. Now, I, I have a question about this third way that, that is often spoken about. I mean, I know many people talk about the third way uh, uh, I think even Ram Madhavji in his book on Dindyal Upadhyay, Pandit Dindyal Upadhyay, one of the uh, you know chief ideologues of the Rashtriya Swam Sevak Sangh, they also have spoken about this third way a lot. But um, it, like, is there a third way? Like, when I read Dindyal Upadhyay's works, I'm not saying it is Arthashastra, so please uh, don't misunderstand me. Like, I think Dindyal Upadhyay's way is pretty much socialism. I don't know what else to call it. I mean, it is socialism, socialism, but I want to call it something different because I don't know, I have an allergy to something. And, and I have a lot of respect for Dindya Lupadhyay and integral humanism. But like, what is this third way? Like, so, so I mean, we, uh, as we're speaking right now, we are in North America, right? Uh, and these societies are built on largely laissez-faire policies, but are they really free markets in the truest sense? I mean... I mean, in Canada, there is so much redistributionism. There is free healthcare. There are so many other things. But in certain, even in America, you have Medicare, Medicaid, stuff like that, and many kinds of different redistributionism. Let's say if you are in the state of California, there is uh, heavy redistributionism, higher taxes. Okay, maybe you go to Texas. It's a different story. But like when we talk about the third way, my my my, my grouse has always been that there is no descriptive third way explained by anyone from our side, our side, a.k.a. the Indians. Yeah, that's a fair point. See, let me try to give you a perspective of what I learned from Kautelia, right? Uh, because, you know, on, on the others that you mentioned, uh, to be really honest, I've not uh, read them enough to sort of give a, a, a perspective. But Purely on what I've seen on Kautilya, you're right. See, there's no, even in a, in a completely laissez-faire society, right? Very idealistic laissez-faire society. Even in the 1990s, when, when it was completely laissez-faire in some countries, you know, obviously the state still played a role. It's not like the state was non-existent, right? So it is always a gradation between the state and the market, right? So even in a, say, completely sort of a Keynesian worldview, where you know you believe that the state plays a more sort of an intervening role uh, and you sort of invest, you put in stimulus, you sort of, the state intervenes to sort of make economic decisions. Th the market still plays a role. It might be a lesser role uh, in that sort of ecosystem. Uh, the same the other way around, if it's a laser fair sort of society, you know, uh, even if you believe that markets are self-correcting on their own completely, you still have the state to sort of facilitate certain services, whether it's health or, you know, uh, other sort of, you know, services. So the first point is there is no complete binary of this, in my view, right? It's 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 an amalgamation at some level, right? But I think what 
this idea of dharmic capitalism, which which I sort of show in the book, or at least ideate in the book according to what Kautelya thinks, is the role of dharma sort of playing a self-correcting mechanism to both the state and the market. Because in other systems, I, I'm adding another variable, put it that way, into, uh, or Kautelya would add another variable, in my view, into this mix, so as to facilitate both the state and the market. Because if there is an issue with the state, say there is corruption, for example, right? Or there is inefficiency in, say, public delivery service, right? So what do we do in today's time? You look at, you know, you look at ways to make that better. You look at the state, try to, you know, streamline the state or, you know, do something to fix that. The same thing with the market. Market's not doing something well. Uh, but what Kautelya sort of believed was the idea of dharma and the competence of dharma if th those things are enhanced and sort of, you know, uh, 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 say, developed within society, then it makes the self-correcting far easier uh, uh, for both the state and the market. You don't need, you know, say, huge cyclical differences between how, you know, societies function when dharma is placed as a foundational role. So I think answering a question I think this tries to bring another dimension to this debate of this binary debate. Because if you look at issues that we're dealing with, say, 15, 20 years down the line, whether it's on demography, whether it's on climate change, most of these issues, I think, to my mind, um, are behavioral issues in some level. And I think that's where this sort of a, an approach, a Kautelian sort of an approach, could be... Uh, valuable. And, and I think in terms of practical implementation of this idea, you're right. There is no sort of model because besides the ancient times in, in recent memory, last hundred years, uh, no one has sort of executed this at, at the ground level, right? Uh, so we don't have a sort of an, an analytical sort of data to sort of substantiate this. Um, but I do think this can add another dimension to the debate. You know what I found fascinating when I was reading your book, and maybe uh, I want to get into dharmic capitalism, but for a later uh, time sure. period. But I want to start, you mentioned the environment. Now, what I liked about Kautilya's way, and maybe you can explain his way of looking at the environment is, you know, the, the classic laissez-faire way has always come out as, you know, exploitative that these are resources that I need to exploit and I need to convert them into a product where I make money of. Not that I have a problem with making money. I like a lot of it. But the point is that the Kautilya way from what I have understood through your book, and at least you're trying to, and correct me if I've misunderstood it, that it was not an exploitative look. It was a complementary outlook. Yeah. That this is a scarce resource, point number one. It, it looks at us as a limited resource. Now, the debate could be done whether it's a limited resource or not, but that's not the point. I'm just trying to state what you have presented. And now that it is a limited resource, you should add in certain uh, regulatory mechanisms through the state and certain nudges through the state, which creates the overall uh, environment and the archetype, which is basically it's more towards complementarity then exploitativeness. Have I misunderstood it? Yeah, I should have you as a PR for my book. Uh, <laughs> that was really well said. I mean, that's that's you really hit it on the nail, right? Because what he sees is even the idea of dharma, right? We we view the idea of dharma in most cases as a sort of a spiritual, not spiritual, sort of a a way of life which eventually you know, sort of leads you into a, uh, into a, into, into another zone, right? But what Kautalya does is he sort of uses this brilliant idea to sort of do what you just mentioned, that take the idea of environment. You take the idea of forest, for example, right? He talks a lot about forest protection, right? So his argument for forest protection is, is twofold. One is for the environment, Okay, the saucham and, and protection of, you know, cleanliness, whatever it is, natural resources, uh, 
uh, Indriyangal and all these things. And then another is he needs forest for defense, sort of, you know, the, those type of purposes uh, to sort of, you know, enhance his statecraft, right? So what he does is he understands these resources are scarce, you're right. So he tries to sort of view it through the prism of responsibilities, which I've also sort of, you know, mentioned, both at a societal level and at an environmental level through the idea of nudges. So he brings these, you know, sort of dharmic nudges as, as concepts, which sort of stimulates people to look at a bigger picture. Because unless, you know, take in, in the environment, for example, unless you or me are sort of convinced by the idea of protecting a particular environment, right? Whether it's your own house or your lawn or your, you know, your park in your neighborhood, you're not going to get outcomes that are favorable unless you, as individuals you're convinced. So that's where he sort of uses these nudges, sort of get home that point. So, yes, you're right. I think uh, his idea is to, at least from, from my interpretation of his idea is, whether it is on biodiversity, whether it is on, you know, civic responses, uh, personal hygiene. Uh, he talks a lot about the saucham part of Dharma. Um, all of it, he sort of aligns it through a set of, you know, uh, uh, either regulations or nudges, as you mentioned. And if it's a regulation, it's strict, right? Uh, it's sort of, uh, 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 it, it is enforcing uh, if you violate the regulation. And in terms of nudges, he sorts of, you know, um, uh, gets your, uh, uh, tries to use some of these techniques to sort of get people to be on board. So you're right. I, I think that is a sort of a way that, that he sort of approaches because I think fundamentally he believed on the welfare of the people, right? And he was, I think, astute enough to understand the welfare of the people is, is, is you know, sort of, is accomplished or, or, or is, it becomes, uh, people's welfare is taken care only if they're sort of convinced by some of these policies. So that's where I think he uses a combination of these two, which you mentioned. So, you know, you use the example of the Swachh Bharat Abhiyan of the current Prime Minister of India, Sri Narendra Modi, and you use that as an example. So so my question to you, I was just wondering, I, I we did not discuss this on WhatsApp, but it just cropped up in my brain. So I, I, I wanted to talk to you about it. Uh, do you consider the Swachh Bharat Abhiyan to be like classical Kautelian in that sense? Because in the case of the Swachh Bharat Abhiyan, the government is investing money too, right? In building, building the Shaochalayas. They're, they're going ahead and giving 12,000 rupees to every person who's participating in this, uh, in this entire movement towards cleanliness. So while the Swachh Bharat Abhiyan is what you would call in the, in the sense of Kautelya, classical nudge. Yes, I agree with you there. But then would Kautelya have also invested money in building those washrooms with the, with the members of the uh, uh, citizenry? Yeah, that's a, that's a nice question. See, the, the idea of getting that part is to sort of contextualize on the, the nudge part of it, because essentially, you know, let's not get into, you know, the dynamics of such part, success, not success, forget about it, right? If you really look at the idea, the idea is you sort of get to your inner, inner sort of dharmic consciousness of cleanliness, and then say, you are clean, you want the society to be clean, therefore I Therefore, you live a much, you know, more holistic life, for example, right? That's a direct nudge. You know, if you're able to throw a variety of mechanisms, say, you know, a mass media, you know, uh, uh, leadership of, of the government and, and people like that, triggering that consciousness, right? And then what it does is it, it then scales up and then you individuals get ownership and then you have a campaign which sort of invest in things like toilets and whatever that you're saying. I think what Kautilya would have done is he would have definitely done the first part of it, which is triggering the consciousness, right? And, and sort of creating an awareness among people and, and then initiating this exercise. But uh, I think what he would have done is in terms of investment, he would have probably focused on areas which require investment rather than across board, right? Meaning 
say there is 35% below poverty or 30% below poverty. He would have probably invested in all this for, for that section of people, right? For the others, he might have still gone with the campaign and sort of, you know, because he believed in sort of targeted support uh, uh, for people who need, who were really needy among uh, uh, the lower uh, lower income sections. So in my sense, I think he would have probably not gone on the scale that we are talking about, but he would have sort of invested this in a much more focused group. And then once that group sort of evolves, he probably would move the next stage rather than going at, you know, one sort of stretch. You know, another point that I wanted to talk to you about is, and in fact, this is something that annoys me the most as an Indian who deals with Western uh, viewership also. When I say Western viewership, I don't mean Indians living in the West like you and I are right now. I'm talking about Westernized people. Now, they could be of Indian origin, like second generation, third generation Indians too. They're basically Westernized. Is this caricature created out of India of otherworldliness? Uh, of people who are very fatalistic. It, 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 I, I, I don't know. 20 years since I've been traveling back and forth to the West, nothing annoys me more than that. <laughs> Honestly, I mean, yeah. the the cows and curry doesn't bother me. This bothers me. This personally bothers me. Is like, at least as a personal charvaka, I was like, Ek to, we gave you the damn materialism before you're Epicurious, first of all. <laughs> We actually yeah. came up with it. We came yeah. up with it. You're and right. dhar- dharma, artha, kama, moksha literally has artha and kama. What are you, blind or something? So let's let's stick to this. Like, you know, there is a quote in your book that uh, you, you, you have written over here. Cortelia's emphasis on material prosperity and his advice that the ruler's happiness lies in ensuring the welfare of the people seems to emanate from this very idea. You're talking about something specific in the book. But I want to focus on the first part that literally means human flourishing or which the westerners use a greek term to use aristotle's term aristotle used to call it eudaimonia so everything that they would judge was on the basis of eudaimonia human flourishing now the indian way is slightly more nuanced the indian way is yes human flourishing is a subset Correct. but it has to be based on the principles of dharma now, can you explain what Kautilya's view was on human flourishing? I see, he is a very, uh, you know, context agnostic guy. So that's another term which I often use. Because you need to understand the Atrashasra text itself. The text itself doesn't mention about any particular king. It doesn't mention about any particular sort of ritual it it says you know you he is against foretelling astrologers he's against people who look at the stars for you know uh, for you know uh, for uh, governing for example it is like a sort of a textbook purely which is sort of agnostic away from all these things it's context agnostic also right so you're right kautilya you know his personal views on these things might be varied but the text itself you know, it, it, it is meant for anyone and everyone, right? And you're very right. I mean, it annoys me as well because we have a lot of, you know, uh, theistic, atheistic traditions within the, you know, the Dharmic fold. Uh, in fact, in Cambodia, there are, uh, in Vietnam, there are folks who are following the Mimamsa way of life. The Mimamsa way of life does not even, they don't even look at a particular God. Vedas, for example, is their sort of, you know, uh, end all of life, you know, and, and they don't, uh, and, and, and the Charvaks is, is another example. And then you, you have a Sankhya, for example, you have a lot of these, uh, traditions, which either don't believe in God or they don't believe in the entity of God as defined by, you know, uh, uh, conventional faith or their way of life is to just enjoy life at, at its, you know, at, at the way it is. But they're all part of the fort. Uh, and I think the reason why you have this fatalistic theory is um, for some reason it's been spread. I mean, uh, uh, the, the sense that because of the fact that you believe in rebirth, you sort of would, uh, would, would fear everything. Uh, which if you look at 
you know, ancient times, evidence is contrary to this. I mean, uh, and, and in Kautilya's case, but in, in his particular case, uh, he was very early, I mean, he was very clear that unless there is economic prosperity, where pe- and which, which impacts people's welfare, which means benefits people's welfare, okay, people's welfare at the base, and then the welfare is defined by economic prosperity. Unless you have this, you, you're not going to have other areas of statecraft, or, you know, political dominance or whatever it is uh, in a sort of a conventional life. So he was, he was probably one of the earlier people to sort of understand this right away. Uh, but yeah, you, you're right. It also sort of uh, amazes me when I keep sort of hearing this. And, and also the idea of globalization, right? I mean, if you really look at history, Globalization was the norm. I mean, in terms of uh, trade, in terms of, uh, I mean, you can define globalization in many ways, but I'm talking about basically interactions between societies of different uh, uh, religions and cultures. You could have Greeks writing about uh, 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 their travels um, across India during all this time. Uh, Chinese embassy notes talk about, you know, Chola interactions, talk about interactions with Cambodia. So trade was fundamental to our sort of historical uh, worldview. And the the era of, you know, socialism and all these things is a pre-post-independent phenomenon. I think pre-independence, or at least our ancient history suggests that, you know, uh, global sort of interaction with people was the status quo. Yeah, I agree. And, and what is funny is like the Indus Valley was trading all the way with different civilizations at that time. And it's kind of naive, uh, you know, for uh, for some of these people to actually have such a stupid view. I'm not talking about the view at the scholarly level. This is, you know, the tier two, tier three that tries to read the scholar and disseminates the scholarly view down into a straw man. Like I barely come across scholars who uh, spew nonsense like this. Most of the times it is people who have read the scholars and then who re- write those and the ones who read the ones reading the scholars and writing them down. So tier three is the worst. Tier two is semi-horrible. Like, any serious person will not make such comments, but yeah, it is what it is. It's, it's It just gets me. Now I want to talk to you about something that fascinated me the most in this in this particular book was this whole minimum wage idea. Now, we are used to the minimum wage as, you know, okay. Like, for example, in America, there is a minimum wage. Every state has a different minimum wage from what I have understood. Every state decides, okay, as per our financial uh, conditions, we are going to fix a minimum wage. But it is standard across all, right? I mean, everybody has to be paid this much. But can you talk about Kautilya's minimum wage? It was fascinating how, how his minimum wage was very, very... He, I mean, sometimes you feel how much time did he have? He created a minimum wage for everything. <laughs> <laughs> no, there's a table which I have in the book. Uh, readers, please go buy the book. <laughs> but there's, there's a brilliant... Uh, uh, listeners, rather, uh, please buy the book. But there's a table which shows the salaries for the staff. Uh, you know, say say in a sort of a governmental setup, it goes from almost like 65 panas to all the way to 60,000 panas, right? He defines those categories for government employees, like how we have government salaries, right? So his idea was that if you're going to have a standard minimum wage of, say, $15, right? Uh, let's take the $15 minimum wage today in America, right? The $15 minimum wage when inflation was at 2%, okay? is very different to when inflation is at 5-6%, right? So if circumstances change, the idea of this minimum wage also changes, right? Depending on how the other indicators are. The same thing for, you know, in India, for example, where the rural-urban gap is so huge. So you might have, I mean, there are lots of discussions to have a rural sort of minimum wage and an urban minimum wage. And then you might even need someone in between the tertiary sort of tier two, tier three cities, which aren't really rural, but aren't urban either, right? So, Kautilya's idea was that you needed to have flexibility on this, right? Either in terms of time frame, meaning in one year, two years, have this sort of a wage, or in terms of income classification. So he believed that the poorest of poor 
sort of requires one rate, which is sort of, you know, ensuring that they, they, they are not below poverty, for example. And then the middle class also would require a certain sort of support, but that would be graded and again, depending on, and he believed the richer class doesn't really need support. But what I'm saying is he classified this in, in terms of income. And most importantly, he believed in the idea of being flexible. So he was open to changing this. At a conceptual level, he believed that, you know, uh, a concept like this is required for, for policy uh, for, for people below a, a particular poverty line. But he believed it was sort of flexible. And he believed, I think, that it is something that needs to evolve and not at a fixed set sort of, you know, prescription. Now, one question I, I so Matsya now if you look at it from a purely laissez-faire approach and uh, today's market-oriented approach, uh, honestly, beyond the purist, I think everybody follows what is classical Matsya that uh, Kautilya talks about, like what India is doing. India will decide which product we can do business from outside. Every country does that. Like even the United States of America has so many protections when it comes to their farmers. So there's nothing new. I mean, so Canada has protections for farmers. I know multiple protections are there. So everybody, so is Matsinayar in that way, the ancient age and much more robust protectionism? No, I wouldn't say that in the sense that, see, the idea of Matsinayar in the book, which I articulate is twofold, right? One, the one idea is on uh, essentially the, the gap between the poor and the rich, right? The big fish and the small fish sort of a approach where uh, an idea of inequality, basically, right? So to sort of ensure that the gap doesn't become too big, Kautila believed in some form of targeted redistribution uh, uh, where he would target a particular, you know, in today's terms, say, he would target a particular category and then provide incentives or, you know, basic support for them. So that's one part of, you know, the Matsinaya uh, uh, thinking of Kotelia. Another part is the, again, in terms of business, right? You don't want, say, big, big businesses to sort of run over small businesses, right? So he sort of believed that, you know, uh, the principle of Matsinaya should be there in, in judicial sort of deliberations where a, a small business owner should get the same sort of legal uh, and 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 swift justice on business issues um, uh, compared to a sort of a big owner, uh, a big business person. So he believed ease of business. That was one of the sort of components of ease of business from Cordelia's sort of point of view. So in in both these cases, it's about the the, the weak man or woman sort of not feeling. Um, uh, um, you know, uh, not feeling run over by the state because of the fact that they're small, right? So I think his sort of an approach is, you know, I wouldn't characterize this as protectionism per se. If protectionism, some form of protectionism is required to achieve this objective, he might do that. But I think what his goal was to ensure that these two components of Matsina are taken care of. Because he believed in the idea of, you know, ease of business quite significantly. I mean, one of his goals was to facilitate trade uh, and to ensure that, for example, importers had a lot of tax breaks, people were importing goods. Uh, they they had security in terms of internal trade, like uh, they, they had in those days, you know, sort of support for people to move goods from one place to another. The state would provide support. Uh, uh, it's called Vartani, which is a sort of a, uh, a person or or, 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 or or a group of people who provide support so that the goods are transferred internally properly. So he so he would so since his goal was ease of business, his aim would be to sort of facilitate this process. So I think Matsinaya should be viewed in that way. And one point which I, I didn't mention, I think I should also add here, is the idea of Yokakshema. Uh, the the really believed in the idea of yoga kshema uh, in the sense that he he believed that the world has to be a better place, uh, and he believed that um, there there has to be sort of even loka kshema and yoga kshema combination of both, where he says that you know society as a whole should you know go up and 
the world should be a more better place, uh, you know, uh, in general. So I, he sort of had that. What I'm trying to do is I'm trying to get that with your protectionist sort of argument is that when I'm thinking out loud, I'm sort of thinking out loud, I, I still feel this idea of Yokakshema and Lokakshema would overpower the idea of protectionism in his policy prescription, um, in, in my view. Again, yeah. it's a trade-off, right? I mean, um, Yeah, so basically, again, the prism one has to look at is, again, for Kautilya, everything is about human flourishing, not at the cost of dharma. Correct. And, and in human flourishing, sometimes you have to be restrictionist. Sometimes you have to put those things because you believe it leads to the greater good, as they say. So right. I guess uh, that that's how one, one, one will look at it. Now, you talk about dharmic capitalism, right? Again, you say uh, the, the principles of dharmic capitalism, uh, as you call it, they our three elements are wealth creation, sustainable growth and welfare, and a rule-based non-interventionist state. We've talked about sustainable growth, but now let us talk about a rule-based yet non-intrusive state because you know it sounds as if these are incompatible at times. You you how do you be rule-based and yet non non-interventionist? It's kind of slightly complicated. Yeah. <laughs> So yeah, let me try to you know explain this a bit more. I think this is one of the areas where I really take on people who who consider Kautilya to be a socialist sort of a, 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 a you know a, a person, because what I mean by rule based and non intervening state is the state has two two major functions, right? Two or at least for for our reference, the first function is rule of law, right? You're gonna have X, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 10, 15, 20, 30, 100 regulations. You violate certain regulations, you break the law, you get the punishment that's required, right? And then the punishment might be severe, but if you don't violate the law, you go on with your life doing whatever that you want, right? And and the second function is the state intervenes in, in some of the things that you do in terms of day-to-day activities, right? Say, for example, you are having a, a water canal uh, or a water reservoir in your, you know, in your land, right? The state can tell you, okay, the, the dimensions of this water reservoir should be only, say, X by X, like 100 by 100, right? That is an intervening state, right? Because it, it is intervening at the micro level of your activity that you're doing, right? What Kautilya does is, in my view, he has certain prescriptions, certain rules and regulations that are very strict. Some of the punishment is very severe. Okay. So, but those rules and regulations do not intervene at the level of microactivity when you are doing. So, for example, if you take the the private sector, right? There used to be a private sector even those times, I mean, where the state activities beyond the state, where traders, for example, right? Traders are people who move from one place to another. Uh, they don't necessarily need to belong to the state, right? You would find it very rare where Kautilya determines the quantity of amount of, say, gold that's being traded, right? He might tell you, for example, I'm going to tax you this much for this much, you know, amount of gold, and he might implement that rule to the hilt, right? But he is not going to sort of micromanage the way you do trade or, or, or the quantum of trade that you're doing, right? So I think, that is the difference that I am sort of laying it out because a, a socialist state is a very, you know, uh, micromanaging state. I don't think Kautilya is micromanaging. I think that's a misconception because people tend to accuse him of being, you know, completely uh, controlling uh, a state which completely controls whatever that's happening. That's not true. The state doesn't control, for example, there's very little in the Arthashastra which tells you, you know, what individual traders need to do. What products do you need to, you know, trade? You know, if the state was so much controlling, he wouldn't have the idea of, say, even a private sector. Because a private sector, by nature, does whatever that they want to do. There are lots of non-state entities at that time as well doing activities. And the last point is, it also comes to the idea of kingship, right? Kautilya clearly believed that the king was a mere servant of the people. 
right? The king's role, you know, is not that of the Raja as, as we define. His idea was very clear. The king served the people. So the king is not doing a great job or his, his, his kith and kin are not up to the task. Kautilya goes, even says that he, he will replace him with someone who's more competent. So he, so his idea of uh, even kingship uh, is not for, it's aimed at the welfare of the people. What I'm trying to say is that if someone who focuses so much on the welfare of the people wouldn't want to constrain them to a completely controlled state. So my argument is he has a very rule-enforcing and strict sort of regulation-based state, but it doesn't intervene at every level of activity. It lays out the framework very well. You exactly know this is what is right. I mean, this is what is you can do. This is what you can't do. And if you don't do this, you're going to get crazy, you know, punishments, whatever it is, in, in according to those times. Uh, but it doesn't intervene into day-to-day -day activities. So that's what I sort of get to in that sense uh, about the, you know, state which is strong but doesn't intervene. So, so would I be right in saying that the key focus in Kautelia's worldview was accountability? Correct. Uh, I don't want to punish you. These are the rules. These are the bare minimum set of rules that I have set, set up over here. Certain areas, so even I remember when I read uh, the Arthashastra, like, he was uh, hawkish when it comes to certain things. Like national security, he was very hawkish. He was like, right. there, there are just no rules. I will do whatever it takes to protect the state. On e economics, he did not care. That he was very right. much, uh, he was like, do what you want to do. Just don't bug me. Yeah, see, the thing with Kautilya is, I, I mentioned this in the book as well. This book is not meant to pontificate about Kautilya, right? Mm -hmm. I acknowledge that he's as flawed as you and me are probably, okay? Yes. And he himself acknowledges that. In fact, <laughs> Kautilya says that that's why the, the first chapter, uh, it's, it's sort of dense, but the reason why I, we, I brought the first chapter is, why we give a pre-Kautilian perspective, is because he himself acknowledges a lot of these ideas came from other people, from... Brihaspati from Shukracharya, he in fact uh, gives quotations where he, he says where he agrees with Brihaspati, where he disagrees with Shukracharya, for example, or vice versa in, in, in some of the text. So he is humble enough to acknowledge that a lot of the ideas in the Shastra are, are an agglomeration of set of ideas which came before and some of its own ideas, right? So he doesn't so he himself sort of acknowledges that he isn't sort of the perfect person that that we are we are used to sort of thinking about uh, uh ancient figures so that's not the so the book acknowledges that right but the since the breadth of the book is across a wide range of areas he is a sort of a he navigates various areas in different ways and this book focuses purely on economics so um you might have, for example, in national security that he does something which is completely contrary to this in terms of some of these things. Uh, so I think that basically depends on what positioning he is and what he wants to achieve based on this. But yeah. purely on, on sort of um, uh, on economic prosperity, I think his ideas on, on these things are fairly consistent. Yeah, the thing that comes up with Kautilya is that the Dandaniti... Right. The enforceability of rules is very high on the priority list for a Kautilya kind of a character. Like he is very clear. These are the rules. Better follow it. If you don't, I am coming for you. Now, whether the rules are harsh or not is not the point of the debate. No, and and yeah. So, so sorry to butt in. I just got a bit excited. <laughs> but on on you know again on our discussion prior, right? On on the the responsibilities against accountability you know, uh, yeah a, a rule enforcing state they can be complementary and i think that's what kautilya wants to achieve in the sense he wants to use the because he understands the prism of responsibility is how society functions right in general right whether you like it or not because I, even today i think in india uh, uh cultural norms sort of define a lot of economic interactions we make so he he believes that that attribute can be used for a variety of 
you know, things that could benefit his policies and his execution. But as you said, provided that the rule of law is also maintained. So it's not an, uh, you know, one or the other, but rather complementing each other. Yeah, yeah, that that, that is uh, that is what uh, does come across um, in in the case of Kautilya, uh, and and you know what the thing is, you can you can always find flaws in everybody's views, but look, these were people of their time. I mean, right. what do you, what do you expect? Like some some great discovery at that time? Why? And and the same thing applies to you because you know, in hundred years maybe we'll be in Mars, and the people sitting in Mars are like. What took you so long, morons? Well, it takes time sometimes. You know, it's like that. And we we build on the mistakes that we learn of from our ancestors, and we we try to correct them, or we learn from them on the models that they they have done done very well. Now, this is a question that you directly ask in the book, and I think it's a very important question. Like, what is the value addition that Kautilya brings to economic thinking compared to other economic thinkers? That's a very important question. What is it? Yeah, so I think it will be an extension of your previous point, right? The, the, the previous point that you mentioned is what we can learn from, you know, ancient thinking, ancestral thinking, and things like that, right? One of the main aims of this book is that despite having this knowledge available, no one really has brought it to the table as it sort of deserves. So the first aim of the book is for your listeners, yourself, and others, sort of wake up to this or at least come to grips with this and then debate, discuss like what we're doing, right? And the second question is, how does, you know, some of these things apply in today's times? So you need to first acknowledge that, you know, there was thinking which earlier, which had some of these ideas. And, and next is you sort of think how you can use some of these ideas in today's times, right? The second part of the question is, is more tricky because we already have established systems in, in today's way of functioning, right? So how do you sort of inculcate some of these values into the established systems? If we take the case of India itself, right, in Bharat. So I think where there'll be a lot of value addition is in the idea of dharma and utilizing some of the concepts of dharma to have more efficient outcomes. Say, for example, take let's go back to Swachh Bharat itself, right? For some reason, say, let's say we come to a conclusion that only 70% or 80% of search bars is effective. You want to make a you may want to make a jump between 80 to 90%, for example, right? You could use some of these sort of dharmic nudges in a more experimental way to sort of get home that point from the 80 to 90% um, of success uh, in a particular policy. So I think where this sort of helps is it sort of helps in sort of making policy a bit more efficient and taking into account sort of the cultural fabric or sort of a, a dharmic fabric into policy making. Because often in, in sort of Asian societies, more so in India and China to an extent as well, there's a big disconnect between what happens on the ground, meaning what happens at our at, at our houses and, and homes and what happens in, in, say, a policy that's being implemented. Take the case of dowry, right? Dowry was outlawed in India in 1955, if I'm not wrong, right? And all of us want dowry to be eliminated, sensible people. But the reality, dowry still exists in India, right? Whether we, whether we like it or not. So, there is a legislation which has been done many years ago, but the effect has not been, you know, good enough to completely eliminate. So these type of principles, even on economic policy, could be correlated, but there's a gap between, you know, for example, I mentioned about the sovereign sort of gold scheme. Um, one of the reasons why the scheme didn't kick off in one survey was that many women felt that 
the gold that they deposit is so sort of they're so attached to that gold because it, it has a much more bigger value to them that they want the same gold back after the maturity of the bond. Right? When you give them a different gold, they feel that you know it's not worth it. So they don't invest in the sovereign gold bond. Right? So this sort of a, a characteristic. So what I'm trying to say is that you could use some of these ideas to further get into the characteristics of people and sort of have or, or, or facilitate better outcomes and make policies more efficient. I think that way, these ideas will be useful to sort of think at it from that lens um, rather than having a wholesale sort of structural uh, um, uh, you know, change or whatever it is. Uh, so you could create an index, for example, which is sort of facilitates like a sustainability index. You could have a you know sort of dharmic coefficient index, for example. For you, you could do a variety of ways. But I think at a practical level, I think what would be helpful is use some of these ideas to sort of facilitate these nudges to to enhance uh, uh, policy outcomes. Yeah. Uh, so one last question, I because this is kind of relevant to contemporary times before we wrap it up. Now, COVID has caused a serious problem across the world. Different countries have approached it in a different way. And in fact, it's going to be one of my future podcasts too with a friend. But my my question is Kautilya specific. Like, how would what was Kautilya's view on debt management? How would the Kautilian state manage debt? Because if, like right now, we are going through some serious <laughs> inflationary issues across the globe. Obviously, there are multiple factors to it, but we cannot deny that COVID and the governments just blindly throwing money, especially governments in the West, just blindly throwing money has led to some of it. Obviously, the Russia-Ukraine crisis has, has a major role to play in it too. But what would what was the Kautilian way of looking at debt? Yeah, so we we I mean there's a, there's a a chapter penultimate chapter in the book where we sort of look at this idea, say 15, 20 years down the line of how I, for example, I myself are sort of ask questions to the Cartelier. See, in in Cartelier's case, there's a a bit of a uh, say two ways to think about debt, right? One is personal debt. Another is a sovereign's debt, right? So. He believed that you know debt sustainability was very important at a personal level, where you had to sort of um, take calculated risks, but also ensure that repayments are done on time. You know there are significant fines if you if you don't repay properly. Um, and, and there are also exemptions. I mean, for people who are disadvantaged, he sort of gives you exemptions. Uh, I even talk about the idea of summer. Than debate in, in 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 the idea of debt resolution um, of how to resolve debt between say businesses and things like that, but in the case of sovereign, I think I'm still in fact thinking about that in my further discovery of Cordelia. One of the things that I because the idea of a sovereign is a challenge, right? I mean, even though Cordelia viewed it as a non-sovereign sort of kingdom because the king, in his view, was still a facilitator of the people. Uh, the sovereign norms that we have today, for example, in, in sovereign debt, uh, slightly are variant. But from my interpretation of his ideas, I think what he would have done is he would have been much more targeted than, you know, than giving money for everyone, for example, uh, during the pandemic. Uh, I think he would have been far more restrained, a more, bit more controlled in terms of the finances. Um, uh, and he would have probably looked for more sort of indigenous solutions uh, to deal with such things, uh, given the constraints of finances. Uh, so my sense is, at least from whatever that I've seen uh, in, in his way of thinking, uh, he would have made it more targeted, meaning provide income support to people only below a particular line, below a particular wage, who people have lost their jobs, for example, or people who, who need that support. And second, he would ensure that the finances of the sovereign is, is sustainable. Uh, because he also believed that the future gener generations shouldn't pay the, you know, uh, 
the ilk of the current generation. Uh, so, and his idea of climate was also similar to that. So, I think he would have been a bit more restrained, a bit more targeted, um, and also uh, 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 he would have looked at the long term more than the short term sort of uh, exigencies. In fact, he this is another area which I probably would explore, but I didn't go into it because it's not really economics. But he talks about even natural disasters, right? Uh, how do you sort of deal with natural disasters? Um, and and what are some of the things that the state needs to do if there's a natural disaster, for example? Uh, so I think the pandemic isn't uh, something he directly probably mentions, but he talks about diseases also. So probably we could you know take some ideas from that to see how he would approach this. Um, but broadly speaking, I think he would have been a bit more restrained, a bit more targeted. Is what I feel. Fair enough. So uh, before we wrap it up, Sriram, uh, what is the next project that you are planning to get involved in? Yeah. Um, yeah, there are a couple of things in my mind, but I think what I am, what I would like to do is to sort of complete what I had in mind in the sense, my thinking was there's an economic framework, which I think from my reading of Cortelia, there is sort of a sort of a philosophy. I would like to sort of, what I'm doing is to sort of look at more common era uh, extensions of this uh, and see how uh, the connections are, if there are any, and then also see the, how people have modified, if they modified this particular framework, uh, for their sort of progress in common era, say kingdoms and things like that. Because one thing, another thing that fascinated me is you have inscriptions of the Arthashastra in, in Cambodia, for example, near the Angkor Wat. There are many inscriptions of the Arthashastra which says quotations of the Arthashastra in 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 those times, uh, which means rulers rulers of Cambodia uh, 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 also had some reference point to this text. So the question is how some of these were modified if they were not. Uh, uh, the same case with, uh, with with some of the uh, uh, kingdoms in the south. So, and and most of them were, the idea of dharma again resonated everywhere, if you had noticed, in general, in terms of their lifestyle, in terms of their upbringing. So, I'm pretty sure it, it is also there in economic policy. So, my probably next work would be, I mean, which I'm sort of started some some work on is to sort of understand this a bit more uh, and hopefully give you a, a, a flavored sort of approach of how these, some of the more common era kingdoms also evolved on this concept. Awesome. Sounds good, man. I, I look forward to uh, reading your, your next work too. This book was a lot of fun and uh, I wish you all the best and uh, hopefully, you know, you go on writing about this because uh, Kautilya is... Uh, kind of known as a foreign policy guy, but never looked at it from an economist perspective. So, you know, congratulations on the book and uh, wish you all the best for the future. Thank you, Kushal. Thanks a lot for, for, for the opportunity. I really enjoyed the discussion. Uh, and to your listeners, uh, you know, uh, request you to buy the book, read it and review it uh, whenever you can. Uh, and feel free to reach out to me. Uh, I have my website, which you can just Google search. Uh, to, if you have any queries and uh, I look forward to sort of further discussions uh, on the subject and uh, there's also a contest for the reviews. Do you want to mention that? Yeah. So yeah, that's what I wanted to say. So guys, we have conceptualized the contest this time. So once you read the book, uh, if you write the review on Amazon, so obviously uh, Sriram is going to choose the, the, uh, the two best reviews in that. So do not forget one thing. When you write the review, please re remember to write your email ID below where you have written. Otherwise, how do we contact you? <laughs> so do not forget to write your email ID. I, I repeat. So once you've read the book, you bought the book, you read the book, you write your review. The top two reviewers will be chosen by Sriram. And uh, those two winners will be given an Amazon voucher of 25 USD each. Obviously, it's sponsored by uh, Sriram. Uh, you guys can submit all your reviews, let's say, by the 15th of September to 16th of September. And uh, once uh, all the reviews are considered around 
18th to 20th, uh, Shriram will, uh, you know, obviously the ones who have won will be directly informed by the email, which is written below in the review. And I also will mention who who the two people were uh, on the community tab of my YouTube page. So there you go. And uh, as always, remember, in the description of the video itself, you will have the link to buy the book. Uh, you can buy it on Kindle or you can buy a hard copy. I'm a Kindle person. I know a lot of people don't like Kindle. So, you know, please buy the hard copy. And uh, if you're listening to the audio version, the same thing applies in the description of the podcast. You'll find it there. And as far as I'm concerned, you guys know the drill. You can subscribe to the Charvak Podcast YouTube channel or, you know, go and subscribe on Spotify, iTunes, Stitcher, wherever you are. And leave a review over there too for the podcast. You can also support the channel uh, by becoming a member on YouTube or a subscriber on Patreon and buy the Charvak Podcast merch and send your donations using UPI. I will see you guys next time. Until then, namaste. Take care. Bye-bye.